You are listening to Redefining Disability, an adaptive sports podcast brought to you by Move United. I am your host, Sean Butcher, and I have the privilege of serving as the editor of Move United Magazine, the nation's leading adaptive sports publication. Each week, tune in to hear how sports have made it possible for our nation's adaptive athletes, training tips from the best coaches and program leaders, and news on the latest technology, equipment, and trends in the industry. Amanda McGrory attended the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign as a dual-sport athlete to play wheelchair basketball and compete as a member of the school's wheelchair racing team. She graduated with a bachelor's degree in psychology and a master's degree in library and information science. Last month, Amanda competed in her fourth Paralympic Games in Tokyo to conclude her career as an elite athlete, racking up seven Paralympic medals and over 25 marathons along the way. She's been active with Move United Junior Nationals and today serves as the archivist of the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee. Amanda, thank you for being our guest. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. So, you know, we're talking about, of course, track and field um, and specifically, you know, maybe it goes by a couple of different names, uh, you know, hand cycling, wheelchair racing. Um, you've been at it, at it for quite a while and, and, and I want to talk to you about that. But let's talk a little bit about how you first got into adaptive sports to begin with. Absolutely. Um, so I was, I was paralyzed at the age of five by transverse myelitis. And in an effort to make sure I was staying active um, and also um, to help me find a, a community of other kids with disabilities that I could relate to, uh, maybe on a different level than my friends at school, uh, my parents wanted to find an adaptive sports program for me to be a part of. Um, so this is way back in 1991, so pre-internet days, um, when it was a little bit harder to track some of these programs down. Indeed. Um, but yeah, absolutely. And so it took them um, quite a few years. But in 19, 1996, 1997, I'm originally from outside of Philadelphia. And the city of Philadelphia uh, was putting together a, a kids adaptive sports program um, for wheelchair basketball and wheelchair track and road racing. Um, and so I started with both of those then uh, when I was 11. And then just loved them both and kept going. Um, I tried quite a few other sports along the way, but basketball and wheelchair racing were the two that always stuck for me. Um, so I went all the way through middle school, high school, um, and ended up getting a scholarship to the University of Illinois to play wheelchair basketball. So I played wheelchair basketball for five years here during my undergrad. But during that time, kind of started transitioning a little bit more um, to taking wheelchair racing more seriously. Mm -hmm. um, started doing marathons, which turned out to really be my my niche. Um, prior to that, I thought that I wanted to be a sprinter. And it turns out that I'm actually a garbage sprinter. And that's why <laughs> I wasn't doing very well with that. And, and so that Philadelphia program, um, how, how far of a drive did you have to, to go in to the city since you said you were outside the city? And was it a local park or a rec center or kind of what was the conduit for, you know, your participation in, in those early years? So it was, it was through the city of Philadelphia's Parks and Rec Department. Um, and it was an adaptive sports program. They had a designated building. Uh, and I'm not quite sure what its purpose was prior to hosting adaptive sports. Um, but as long as I was a part of the program, that was, was where it was um, all centered. Um, it's pretty lucky. We, I guess I was beyond Philadelphia suburb area, um, but it was only about 45 minutes to an hour drive, which is 
not bad um, and really lucky considering there are quite a few people uh, who are part of that program that were driving from states away, sometimes two and a half, three hours, because at the time it was the closest program and it was the only place um, where they could be a part of a team like that. Um, it's also really lucky that my dad owned his own business um, and he had a little bit more freedom, I think, than many other parents do when it comes to things like this. So he was able to take half days, take afternoons off um, in order to to get me places on time. Yeah. And I think even still today, there there are pockets or uh, in the community where people do drive for hours uh, because of that's the closest uh, site or program to them. So, uh, you know, uh, hopefully that continues to improve. But I know that that's still um, uh, definitely a, a thing that happens on a regular basis still yet today. Absolutely. And and so you already mentioned that you went to the University of Illinois um, and played basketball there. Uh, so they give did they give you a full ride to to uh, to to attend and play basketball. Um, I did not have a full ride to play basketball. I think that's a little bit more common now than it was in the early 2000s. Um, I started off with a, a small scholarship and eventually moved up to an out-of-state tuition waiver, uh, which is really helpful because out-of-state tuition at the University of Illinois um, was and still is outrageous. Um, (laughs) So that was definitely very helpful. Um, But I think that as adaptive sports, especially collegiate level adaptive sports have grown um, and gotten a little bit more attention from the universities, from some private donors, there's a little bit more funding available, um, which I think is fantastic. It opens up opportunities for a lot of people who maybe couldn't go to an out-of-state school um, unless they did have a full ride or a pretty substantial scholarship. And, and definitely, I want to talk mostly about track and field and your experience with track and field. But before we, we depart from basketball, was there any uh, thought in your head that you, that you wanted to pursue uh, playing wheelchair basketball at, you know, maybe uh, the Paralympic level or other competitive and league level? Um, yeah, absolutely. So when I when I moved out to to Illinois on a basketball scholarship, that was my focus sport for sure. I'd been getting more and more frustrated with wheelchair racing um, at that time because, like I said, I thought I wanted to be a sprinter, and it turns out that I'm just not made to be a sprinter. Um, and so I felt like I was putting a lot of work in and not really getting any faster or seeing any improvements. Um, and at the same time, working with a organized basketball team. Um, playing with national team members every day um, under one of the best coaches in the world, I quickly started seeing the gains there. And so before I started doing marathons, I had kind of already decided that like basketball was going to be my path and wheelchair racing was fun, but maybe it would be something that I just kind of stuck with as cross training um, or for fun in the summer. And when it came time for team trials for Beijing, I was actually invited to go to basketball trials um, for the Beijing team, as well as going to trials for track and field. Um, and that's when I really had to sit down and make a decision about what sport I wanted to pursue for my future. And um, what was that decision like? And how did you come to come to making that decision? It's a tough one. Um, <laughs> wheelchair racing was always my first love. And so I think that that made it a little bit easier for me. Um, Basketball is fun because there's a team aspect to it, um, and that adds a different dynamic to the sport. Um, But there's something about individual sports, knowing that you've put in the time and the preparation and the effort, and then to see that come back in a 
in a very real way, you get pretty direct feedback. Um, that's always been really satisfying to me, going out and competing against myself um, and working on my own individual skills and seeing what I can do to yeah. be better or faster or stronger. Absolutely. And so you made, the, obviously, the, the national team and made it to Beijing. Um, I believe you did, a, you did a hat trick, if you will, at, in, at the 2008 uh, Paralympic Games, right? You want a gold, silver, and bronze right off the bat? I did gold. So, well, I actually I tossed a, a spare bronze in there too for the relay. Okay, <laughs> so, right, right. <laughs> uh, gold, silver, and bronze in individual events, and then one one extra bronze for the four by one hundred relay as well. Um, so not not too bad for for first games. And, and so, um, did you have that that type of expectation going into you know your first Paralympic Games? Um, and and how did you feel, obviously, accomplishing? Uh, you know, meddling multiple times uh, at the, at those games. Oh, I was just a snotty 22 year old when I went to Beijing. So I absolutely thought that I was going to meddle in everything <laughs> that I that I competed in. Um, I was I was really lucky that from so I did my first marathon in 2006, um, and that's when I figured out that my strength was really in the longer distance events. Um, so once I made the switch and we switched over to some longer distance training, started. And I started focusing on those longer distance events, 1500, 5000 marathon. Um, things started coming together really quickly. Um, so I went from being absolutely like a no name athlete that no one had ever heard of before um, to coming into Beijing as the world record holder in the 5000. And so just because I think things jumped up very quickly, I had really high expectations for myself um, that I was going to do well there. And it's funny because. I think as a reflection of me being very young and very inexperienced, um, it didn't really even sink in what I had done until much, much later. Mm. I remember um, coming home after the games um, and then flying back to visit. My family's from um, Southeast Pennsylvania. We went over that. Um, so flying back to Philadelphia area and being super, super jet lagged and just like, laying in bed, staring at my ceiling, giggling, because it was so cool that I had a gold medal. That is, um, but that's absolutely. like a month after the fact. <laughs> and so let's, let's walk through the next couple Olympics. And so then, of course, you made the 2012 uh, Paralympic Games in London and, and talk about, you know, going into those games and your success from obviously the, the games four years prior. What was, what was your expectation and, and your results there? So up until the 2012 games, I had never really experienced any disappointment in my sport at all. Um, I went into the games feeling very, very confident, um, especially coming off of an incredibly strong performance in Beijing and ended up walking away empty handed. Um, I made some silly mistakes in some of the track events. I think I was overconfident and distracted. Um, I know that I focused way too much in a few of my races on what my competitors were doing instead of running my own race. And that mm. came back to get me pretty hard. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that after those games, it was when it really sunk in for me that like going to Beijing in 08 um, and doing really well there, like that's, that's not the norm. Um, it was a pretty incredible experience. And leading up to the 2016 games uh, it changed my perspective a lot 
on what it meant to to be a Paralympian, um, and on top of that, what it meant to be a Paralympic medalist. Um, so I promised myself if I had the opportunity to win another medal, um, that I was going to appreciate the experience for everything that it was, instead of sitting atop the medal stand, um, thinking about what I was going to have for dinner, like I was doing in <laughs> Beijing. That's, that's a good point. That's what I wanted to kind of get at was that you know that kind of sense of you know disappointment and. And what you know, essentially, every athlete at some point in time has to has to kind of bear bear with and deal with. So, um, and so that you know sets you up for Rio in 2016 and and getting back to the, the the podium, if you will. Early on, I know you also participated in like a number of regional games, and I think you were at the Great Lakes Games uh, sponsored by Glassa, which is one of our chapters uh, in the Chicago area. Uh, how did the how did you um, approach those different games, and were they kind of training grounds for you, or opportunities for you to just participate in other uh, competitions? Um, yeah, absolutely, a little bit of both. I've been. Um closely associated with Glassa for a long time. I'm great friends with Cindy. Um, and I love going up and seeing her kids there, um, giving them some pointers uh, and just getting out and having fun. Um, but in order to, in order to qualify to compete at nationals um, and the trials for Tokyo, uh, every athlete has to hit an entry standard. Um, and so in addition to running at, at that event, um, you have to run track events prior to that in order mm-hmm. to hit eligible times within the season to qualify you to enter the competition. Um, and so a lot of times we'll travel around to different smaller regional competitions um, for a little bit more time on the track, um, for entry standards, sometimes just because we're trying out some new things, a new seating position, um, new gloves, and want an opportunity to, to try it out in a race-like scenario. Um, you can always try it out at practice, but for some reason, when you're on the line and the gun goes off, it's just a different sensation than somebody with a stopwatch sitting on the side of the track at practice. Yeah, that's a good point. You you mentioned, Amanda, that you are a much better long distance uh, racer than than a sprinter. How did you, I mean, what, can you talk a little bit about how you came to that conclusion and what the difference is maybe even in training? Um, for athletes that are either that are looking in the track and field but may not know, you know, which one they would prefer to do at this point. Oh yeah, I got bribed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so my uh, my coach at the University of Illinois, Adam Blakeney, um, and former Illinois athlete and his very good friend Scott Hollenbeck, um, we're just talking about some of the athletes on the team, and they both had a hunch that. Maybe the problem that I was having uh, with the sport was that I wasn't doing the right events. Um, So they created this elaborate story about how there was a track camp and I could go to the track camp, but I hadn't actually hit the qualifications for the track camp, which meant that I was going to have to pay a fee for entry, but they were going to be really nice to me and waive that fee if I would agree to do um, the inaugural Colfax Marathon, which Scott just so happened to be coordinating the wheelchair division of and was trying to build a field. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I really wanted to go to the track camp and quickly agreed to this completely made up scenario. Um, they told me that if I, if I did well in the marathon and ended up uh, with any prize money, that the deal would be that I had to donate my prize money to the camp to cover my entry fee. Um, I didn't learn until very recently that they were already going to invite me to the camp and this entire story was manufactured. I learned that about a year ago. Um, so 
That, that's quite an elaborate uh, cover for that, 13 isn't it? 13 years of my life, I've been living a lie. Uh, <laughs> um, but I went to, we started stretching out my training, um, moving to some longer stuff. I went to the track camp. It was great. I thought that they were going to forget about this deal that I had made. They did not. Flew to Colorado and did the Colfax Marathon. Finished in two hours and two seconds in third place with a thousand dollar prize check, which was more money probably than I had ever held in my hand at one time at that point <laughs> in my life. And it was like, okay, well, I did it. I'm done. Whatever. Three weeks later, I had another conversation with Scott and Adam and they were like, oh, there's this other race in Minnesota or not in Minnesota. Yeah, in Minnesota. Um, Grandma's Marathon in Duluth, Minnesota. Um, They were going to pay all of my expenses. I would get per diem money, so it would be a completely free trip. There was a huge prize purse. I would get to keep any prize money that I want. I wouldn't have to donate it to cover my entry fee for a camp, and I should try to do it. Um, And I wasn't sure, and I agreed, and that was it. Um, I won. I was within... I took 15 minutes off of my... 17 minutes off of my previous time, um, was sec within seconds of the course record. And that is how I became a marathoner. Wow. Well, that's, uh, that's an awesome story. <laughs> it's just, it was ridiculously long winded. Um, but yeah, I was really, really reluctant to do anything longer than 1500 meters because I just felt like it was too long. And then once I discovered that 26 miles, well, 26 miles is still a long way, but it's more fun to go 26 miles if you're good at it, I guess. Um, and as I started stretching out my training more and more um, and getting some more endurance base build up, um, getting getting used to putting that distance in, it started to feel a little bit easier. Um, and so I think like running um, for wheelchair racing, athletes tend to tend to veer one way or the other. Um, you're either more of a sprinter, you have a more powerful stroke, um, you're you get off the line fast, or you have the longer, more efficient distance athlete um, racing stroke. And so the the crossover, there's a little bit more crossover. Um, the stroke is more similar than it would be for a runner. Um, it'd be absolutely unreasonable for a 100-meter runner to ever try to run an 800 or a 1,500-meter event. Um, but because the the mechanics of the stroke are a little bit more similar than the mechanics of running. Um, it's not unusual for sprinters to stretch all the way up to the 800 or 1500 meter events. Um, and your marathoners and distance athletes to stretch down to the 800, some of them even dabbling in the 400. Mm, okay. And, and so, um, as a long distance, uh, racer, what, what is your training like? What is your, what would, how would you describe your kind of your, your daily training regimen? Um, so I'm still training with the group at the University of Illinois. We are um, an official Paralympic training site. And so I think that we've got a training group of nearly 30 athletes right now, um, about half of them national team members, and then a significant chunk of that half, maybe um, about 10 or so um, of that group are Paralympians. And so it's a really, really incredible group. Um, maybe the the strongest training group in the world. It's unusual to find um, pockets of any more than three or four athletes um, like this, but to have a, a group of 30 that trains together every day uh, is pretty incredible. 
And so depending on where we are in the season, um, it's usually eight training sessions a week. Six of those are in our racing chairs. Um, and then we'll do two. Some of the, the sprinters who are working more on strength and power will go up to four lifting sessions a week. So eight to 10 um, workouts. And then right now um, we're indoors. We've been doing a lot of training on the rollers. Um, the rollers are not great for endurance training because if you have ever run on a treadmill for two and a half hours, staring at a concrete wall, you know how hard it is to stay focused. Um, but so we've been doing a lot of shorter, um, high speed, high power intervals right now. Um, and we'll start to transition out to some longer stuff as it gets warm enough for us to be outside. And so our like spring marathon prep training, we'll probably do two long sessions a week. That'll be 15 um, to 25 miles. And then we'll mix in there um, some, some sprint work, working on some starts, working on some accelerations, um, and then working on some different paced distances on the track. Um, because another difference from wheelchair racing to running is that unlike running a marathon where the speed for the most part, is pretty steady um, for the runners. There, it's a lot more dynamic for wheelchair athletes, and so there are sprints and attacks. Um, the speed and pace is constantly changing um, because we have a there's a drafting effect to wheelchair racing, like there is to cycling. Um, there's big packs of athletes, and people will shoot out the sides and attack off the back. Um, mm -hmm. Everyone is always trying to to get a little bit ahead and run their best race. And so, if you've got great climbers in the pack, as soon as there's a hill, people are going to be taking off and sprinting. Um, and so, training all the time, um, long distances at a steady pace, doesn't really set you up um, to be able to react to those sorts of attacks. Or even better than that. Um, to set you up to be able to put on one of those tacks. And so our training is very dynamic to kind of mirror that race setup. That's fantastic. Yeah. And how, how does obviously nutrition is a big part of your training as well. How do you uh, tackle, you know, the, the nutrition component? Um, so we, as a team, work with Liz Broad from the USOPC. Uh, she is our team nutritionist and she is fantastic. Uh, one of her biggest things is that she is very much into whole foods, which I like. Um, eating real food to <laughs> fill as much, as much of your nutritional needs as you can, instead of using any sort, uh, any sort of supplements or vitamins or minerals, but trying to, to get what you need out of your diet. And then on top of that, moderation. And so I never felt the need to deprive myself um, of anything that I really like. If I want to have a bowl of ice cream for dessert one night, absolutely, why not? If I'm having ice cream for every meal, that's probably a problem. And I'm sure that <laughs> she and I would have to have a talk about that. Um, but I do, I do really like the, the idea of whole foods and the idea of balance um, and of not depriving yourself of any specific type of food. And so I do do my best to, to try to stay healthy um, and not not eat just you know awful processed junk all the time, um, but I like knowing that I have the the freedom um, to not always make the best choices and give myself the day off sometimes, um, and that's not going to to destroy my performance. And and what advice would you give um, your younger self if you were able to you know interact with your younger self, what would you, what would you tell a younger Amanda as, as she's embarking on this journey? Oh man. 
Um, well, first of all, if we're going back to Beijing, I would tell myself not to be so full of myself <laughs> um, and to really savor the experience for everything um, that it is. Um, and then also not to not to get so frustrated when when things go wrong. Um, I had a couple of rough years after London uh, where I felt like I was really doing the training and things just weren't falling into place. Um, and I think a lot of that, there's a huge mental component that goes into being an elite athlete as well. Um, and I think that's something that's forgotten about a lot. You can train and train and train as much as you want. But when you get out on the uh, the start line at the Paralympic Games, every other person that's there has been training just as much as you have. Um, and I think a huge part of that edge comes from being really, really mentally strong and mentally sound. Um, and not not getting in your head um, if you make a mistake or something doesn't go exactly to plan. Being able to be resilient and bounce back from that instead of focusing completely and entirely on all the things that, that are going wrong. Um, this is an incredible opportunity. It's a lot of fun. And I think that sometimes people get too wrapped up in, in the competition of it and forget that being a professional wheelchair athlete is awesome. And, and likewise, you know, I know that you, you mentioned that you, you, you know, go to Glassa from time to time and interact with younger athletes. Is that the same advice that you give them or do you get, is there, is there other advice that you give them that we've not talked about? Um, no, that's absolutely something I would tell them for sure. Um, and that you just, you know, every day is not going to be great. That's another big thing. Um, some days at practice are going to be terrible. You're going to feel like crap. Your speeds are going to be awful. Nothing's going to go right. Um, and that's a, especially starting out in wheelchair racing, it can be really tough. The learning curve's pretty steep. Um, and getting into getting into the right chair setup um, with the right gloves, learning the stroke, a lot of that is, it's tough um, and it's hard work, but it's one of those things that really, really pays off. When you put the time and effort in, you get that back tenfold, um, especially in this sport. And so I always encourage athletes, especially the ones starting out, to just be patient um, and take their time. And it's all going to come together. If they, if they put in the time and the effort, um, they'll see the results. Mm-hmm. 